Warning, this show may contain adult language that is not suitable for all audiences. This is the TSN MMA Show with Aaron Bronstetter and Bazooka Joe Valtellini. Welcome to another episode of the TSN MMA Show Interview Edition, and we have some fantastic interviews to get to. If I do say so myself, it starts off with UFC President Dana White. We talk about UFC 260, a big main event, headlined by two other guests on this show today. The greatest UFC heavyweight of all time, Stephen Miocic, and the heaviest hitter in UFC history, Francis Ngannou. And in the co-main event, we have Tyron Woodley, one of the all-time great welterweight champions in UFC history. He joins the show as well. And we are joined by a coach who has his first UFC champion under his belt. Aljamain Sterling won the title earlier this month at Bantamweight. And now we've got Francis Ngannou on the horizon for this event. Eric Nixick could land two, his first two UFC champions in just one month. Very exciting times for Extreme Couture and for Coach Nixick. So it was great to pick his brain, talk about the evolution of Francis Ngannou, what we haven't seen yet, and what it was like to coach Francis when he beat Jarzinho Rosenstrike last time around. It seemed like he went off script, so that was fun to discuss with him. Let's get right into it. We'll start off with UFC President Dana White, followed by the two main event combatants at UFC 260, Tyron Woodley and Eric Nixick. Thanks for tuning in to this week's TSN MMA show. Here's UFC President Dana White. UFC President Dana White joins me from the UFC War Room, and we have a war ahead of us this weekend. UFC 260, the rematch between Stipe Miocic and Francis Ngannou. And Dana, the thing I've been asking everybody is whether the lack of in-cage competition time for Francis Ngannou over the last two years, his last four fights, under three minutes in length in total, is that going to hurt Stipe Miocic because he has less tape to watch? Or do you think it'll hurt Francis more because he hasn't gotten the in-cage competition time to practice some of his new skills that he's acquired over the years? That's a good question. I didn't, I, I, you know, I was talking about that, that number yesterday, and uh, that's a good question. Here's the reality. Francis Ngannou is, is obviously a better fighter than the last guy that faced uh, Miocic. But uh, Stipe Miocic is the greatest heavyweight of all time, and he always finds a way to win. Yeah, he's certainly very crafty. You look at Francis, and is he starting to get that kind of Mike Tyson effect where people are talking about him? because of all of these first-round finishes. I think in his last eight wins, they've all come in under two minutes in the first round. It reminds me of when Ronda was running through her opponents and, of course, Mike Tyson. Do people talk about Francis? Do you hear a lot of buzz about him for that reason? Well, I think uh, in the first fight, going into the first fight with Stipe, he absolutely positively had that aura of invincibility. Um, if he touches you, he's going to knock you out. You know, I was talking about, you know, he hits with the force of a... Toyota something, I don't remember, a Ford, I don't, I don't remember, Escort. but, you know, <laughs> how, how hard he hits, and uh, nobody had beat him yet. So for Stipe to go in there mentally, that first fight, and do what he did, there's no doubt about it, going into this fight, he has the mental advantage, no matter what. That, that Mike Tyson aura isn't there now uh, for Stipe. Stipe knows he already beat him. He knows he's better and he's worked on things, but I guarantee you he's trying to figure out. He, he's found some type of hole in his game that he's going to try to expose. Now, Daniel Cormier had been saying that if Stipe didn't take enough time off between the last fight with, with Cormier, because, again, they, they've had three in a row. He's absorbed over 300 significant strikes from Cormier, which is a big deal, that he, he thinks Ngannou is going to get the win. 
if, if Stipe hasn't had enough time to heal up, do you, do you find anything uh, accurate about that? Um, uh, listen, these guys are, we, we, we would never put somebody in that wasn't 100% healed. He's, he, I, I think Stipe is, is healthy and, and, and ready to go. I, I, there's no indications whatsoever medically that this guy isn't able to fight. So John Jones has next. Uh, he's going to face the winner of this fight. Have terms for that been agreed to as of yet? And in a perfect world, no injuries this weekend. When would you like to see that one take place? Yeah, no, we, we haven't talked about any of that yet. We, you know, let's see how this this weekend plays out. And then uh, and then we'll start talking to John Jones about a possible heavyweight matchup. So, again, in a perfect world, when would you like that one to happen? If you could say it's going to happen on this date, forget about contracts and all that. But if you could just decide when that would be, ideally, when would it be? Yeah, I, I can't do that because, you know, I don't know how this fight's going to go. I don't know how long this fight will last. I don't know how much damage, uh, you know, the winner of this fight will take. There's just so many things that, that factor in to, to uh, making a second fight. I mean, if everything went right and, and you know, it, it was a quick win by either guy, takes absolutely no damage whatsoever, um, you know, th then, then, then I'd have to talk to them personally. Well, what do you got going on this summer? Is, are they having a baby? Are they doing this? It, it, there's just so many things that come in. But in a perfect world, I mean, we could do that fight in the fall. Cool. Yeah, you mentioned baby Stipe expecting a son in the, in the month of August. So congratulations to him. Uh, I was watching the broadcast this past week, and then Brendan Fitzgerald looked like he'd seen a ghost when he came on the air to break the really bad news that the co-main event was off. Uh, Alexander Volkanovsky uh, versus Brian Ortega not going to happen this weekend due to COVID-19 protocols. When do you think that one's going to be rebooked for? Uh, did we reschedule that? I think we did. Let me look here. Uh, off the top of my head, I don't know. And it's not on the board here. But, uh, but yeah, we're talking about rescheduling that one ASAP. Is Alexander Volkanovsky staying stateside, uh, given that he had a uh, positive diagnosis? Yeah, yeah that's, that's, you know, because these guys will all have to go home and quarantine and, uh, you know, camp again, then come back here again. So, yeah, it makes more sense for them to stay here, and we try to turn this fight around. Could that be a fourth title fight for next month? Are you, are you talking about turning it around that quickly, or are you thinking no. uh, possibly May I with the Oliveira and Chandler fight? Three is a lot. Four is, four is too much. <laughs> three is awesome. Four is too many. Oh, well, you can never get too many title fights. Four <laughs> is too many. Well, you got to feel for Volkanovski. Uh, but we talk about the uh, card with three title fights. Tickets are on sale already for Jacksonville. I try not to ask you dumb questions about whether or not it's going to sell out because this one's going to sell out. But uh, how excited are you to get back to full again? Uh, Let me tell you again? this. Let me tell you this. Everybody's going to talk about, oh, we're doing it first. We're doing this. We're doing No, they're not. No, they're not. Nobody's doing it like we're doing it. We're going sold out, full capacity, indoor arena, no outdoor not going to sell out we went on pre-sale today we already broke the arena's record for for gate we broke the record all time um this this thing will be a sellout as soon as it goes on sale tomorrow and uh you know i hear a lot of people blah, 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 that we're not going to be first we're first nobody's doing it like we're doing it and we're selling jacksonville out yeah, people talk about baseball, but as you mentioned, that's outdoor, uh, outdoor stadiums. 
now when you look at UFC 262, that's going to be in Houston. Is the plan going forward to do these pay-per-views in front of sold-out arenas, you know, as long as the regulations remain what they are right now? Yeah, I'm only going to places that I can sell out the arena. But again, going forward, like if, let's say UFC 263, 264, are you hoping to continue to do those in front of live capacity crowds? Yes. You look at that fight in Houston, UFC 262, the lightweight division. You've got Chandler versus Oliveira now, an awesome fight. But you guys had a lot to choose from. You had Gaethje, uh, you have Dustin Poirier, of course, uh, although it looks like the Connery match is next for him. How did you decide on those two guys to fight for the lightweight title? Yeah, so first of all, you got number three versus number four. Um, Poirier was offered the fight, but Poirier wanted to, uh, Poirier wanted to fight the, the Connery rematch, uh, which makes sense. Uh, totally makes sense. Um, Oliveira just came off an incredible win over Tony Ferguson, looked completely dominant against the guy that many people thought, thought should have fought Khabib and, and, and was the best matchup for Khabib. And then, you know, Chandler came in here like a, like a tornado um, and looked damn good in his last fight. So it's the fight that made sense. Yeah, we talked Poirier number number one, and then you got three and four. But what about number two, Justin Gaethje? Where does this leave him? Yeah, get, well, Gaethje just lost to Habib. Uh, you know, just went for a title run. We'll get him something good, and then whoever wins this title, you know, will will we'll probably face Justin Gaethje next. So this was about finding fresh challengers for the title. That's why you went with those two guys. Well, no, we went with those two guys because that's the fight that made sense. Uh, big news yesterday, Misha Tate coming out of retirement. She's going to be facing Marion Renault in July. How excited are you to see Misha back in there? Yeah, no, I love Misha. She's awesome, and, and uh, you know, she's fired up and, and, and mentally ready to, uh, to compete again. So, yeah, it's, it's fun to have her back. And finally, this is the last event of the Reebok deal. Next week, there's no event. Are we going to see an unveiling of sorts for the new uniforms, or are we going to see them for the first time uh, at the next event? They showed me everything yesterday. I saw all the stuff yesterday. So, um, yeah, we're excited about it. But, you know, got to thank Reebok. You know, Reebok was the first one to, to, to stick their neck out and, and, and support this sport, change the game forever, change the look, and uh, made us look great on television. So big, big, big thank you to Reebok. What did you think of the new uniforms, uh, if you don't mind me asking? Did you, did you uh, I love them. have any I love creative them. input for that going forward? Yeah, no, I love them. And, 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 you know, Venom is a company that focuses on mixed martial arts. That's what they do. That's their business. So, you know, their, their, their stuff is super nice, high quality, um, but, but made for fighting. So I, I think that, uh, you know, they're the perfect fit for us. The fighters are going to love it. And the money goes up, so I love that even more. Looking forward to seeing those uniforms. I'm looking forward to this weekend, UFC 260, a heavyweight rematch between Fipe Miocic and Francis Ngannou. Uh, impossible to not want to see that one. Thanks for this, Dana. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm now joined by the greatest heavyweight in UFC history, the champion of the world, Fipe Miocic, a rematch with Francis Ngannou. You know, when people step in there with Francis Ngannou, I, I fear, feel like they have a lot of fear because 
of what he's able to do in the cage. But you've been in there with him before. How much of a, that? Uh, sorry, how much of an advantage is that for you? Do you believe going into this one? Well, I mean, I think it's a great advantage, but you know, also he's, he's come to taste of that's something that's mine. I mean, he's, you know, he's not happy from the first time we fought. Um, unfortunately, it's going to happen again. He's not walking out with that belt. It's me. I'm walking out with the belt, and still nothing's going to change. His last couple fights, they total about three minutes in length. Is that difficult for you to get a gauge on just how much he's improved since then? No, I mean, I guess. I don't know. I don't worry about that. I'm going to do what I do out there. Um, you know, he'll, he'll, show me, he'll show me his cards right away. I know he will. Um, that's what everyone does, and I'll be fine. Do you watch tape on these guys, or do you rely on your coaches for that? Uh, both. You know, we usually, uh, my coaches watch film. We go over for about eight weeks, and then right before the fight, we'll watch just a few few things about why I'm doing what I do, and, and I watch, you know, so I really don't watch to the end, but they watch it throughout camp and just kind of go over our game plan throughout the whole, you know, kind of just sink it into the head, make sure I soak it in good, and then they show me why I did it. Now, have you watched his fight with Derek Lewis in its entirety? And if so, did you get anything out of that? Uh, no, I was actually fighting that night, too. That's when I lost my title. Thanks for bringing that up. Yes, it was uh, the same night as that. But when you go back and, and look back at tape of Francis, do you go back and watch that one in particular? Do you watch all of his fights? How much do you actually uh, take in? I don't know. You know, it's, uh, We watch his clips, you know. We don't watch all the fights, just what he does, because they're not really that long, so it only takes about 10 minutes, which is good. Um, you know, I have a lot of other, stuff, other things to do. Um, <laughs> I'm just joking. Um, but I know he, uh, you know, he, we do watch all the fights. I mean, I don't really watch too much from that Derek Lewis fight because he didn't do much. Um, but the other ones, you know, he definitely stepped up and, you know, he, he was showing why he's, you know, Francis and what he does. But, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm fine. You know, I break down tape of your interviews in order to prepare for this interview. And whenever you're asked about, you know, whether you're respected, your legacy, where you should be pound for pound, you always say you don't really care about that kind of thing. Is that because you're in it right now and, you know, you're, you're more focused on the task at hand and all that other stuff is just noise? It's always about the task at hand, no matter what I do in life. It's always about task at hand. But uh, the legacy I worry about is the ones I leave for my children. You know, it's great, you know, with the fight, you know, and the legacy, you know, I did well and I did something right. But my legacy is more towards my children. You know, we're having another one in, in this August and I want them to be just good people, you know, be good to everyone else, you know, good things happen to good people, I'm going to tell them that, and, uh, you know, whatever they do in life, make sure they go hard at it, and make sure that, um, you know, th they earn it, they don't, they're not given it, because, you know, nothing's ever given, it's earned, and, you know, and it's not, it's not as gratifying, gratifying if you, you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't earn it. Yes, congrats, a baby boy on the way in August, that's uh, some awesome news for you and your family, uh, congrats on that. Uh, you, you talk about wanting to have a legacy just for them. Is there much more you can do in terms of mixed martial arts to make that legacy even better? I mean, your legacy, I think, kind of speaks for itself at this point. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I love what I do. You know, I have fun. Um, you know, I mean, I'm not, the minute I'm not having fun, I'm out. And the better I know, I'm having fun. I, I enjoy the process, you know, and uh, I'm a very competitive person. I love the competition aspect. And, um, you, know, uh, you know, since I got, you know, my wife got pregnant again, I'm thinking about switching over to hockey because I flipped another one past the goalie. So we'll see. Well, you started off baseball, you've done boxing, you've done mixed martial arts. I think hockey in the state of Ohio is a natural progression. I think you'd be very good at that. Yeah, no, I know. I was just joking because I was, you know, my wife's pregnant. I said, slipping past the goalie. So I was just trying to. You know. no, I got you. I, I got the joke. Now, I, was, I was firing one back at you. <laughs> oh, sorry. I had to. Oh, sorry. I had to. 
so with your son being born in August, August is a pretty cool month for you. I mean, that's uh, the same month where you beat Daniel Cormier both times. Does that have any sort of special meaning for you? Uh, well, my birthday is August 19th. My wife's the 22nd. My daughter's is the 25th, but right now we have three Leos in the house. So, um, so we'll see if uh, this guy will become a Leo too. There's, I feel like he will be. I just feel like he might be born on my birthday, my wife's birthday. I'm having that feeling, but uh, we'll see. But all, all I care about is that you know he's healthy, and uh, that's all we care about. You know, just no matter when he's born. Well, that's really cool. Everybody's August, so the whole Miyashish family's August. That's when you did win those fights. Sorry, go ahead, Pepe. I was saying, no, it's, uh, it was a little rough in the beginning because, you know, I had two women that were Leos, you know, my daughter, two and a half, my wife, and they, they don't mess around. They're savages. And I was just happy to get another man in the house, another get some more testosterone flowing because it, it would have been a rough, rough time with another girl. I would have been, I, I been happy, but, man, oof, I, I think my hair would have fell out. It would have been bad. <laughs> well, you've had, uh, I think, stiffer challenges on your plate in terms of your fight career. Uh, after your last fight, you mentioned in an interview recently that, you and the, the folks at the firehouse went and sat down and watched the fight. And you took them through what you were going through uh, for each moment. Did that help you? Uh, did that change the dynamic at all at the firehouse? I know you're just kind of one of the guys at that point in time. You, you clean toilets. Sometimes they make you stand out on the street with the belt. Uh, you know, what was the dynamic like at that moment where they're actually watching you talk about that part of your life? Well, it was just cool because uh, they never really bothered me about fighting. They don't, they'll ask, you know, once in a while, but they never just talk about it. They don't, you know, they'll bring up stuff like from other fighters, but never really, they just don't really bother me a lot because I'm like one of the guys. But it was just kind of cool. Like one of the guys like, hey, man, like, is it cool? If, like, you just sit down and like, we have a recorded. Do you, do you mind just like going through and tell me what you were thinking? And all the guys were like, yeah, that'd be great. I'm like, that'd be awesome. You know, it was just kind of cool. And uh, actually, I got goosebumps thinking about that because it was just uh, such a cool feeling for the, from the, to go on the way and ask me, you know, they, they loved it. They loved every second of it. And how much, uh, how soon after you guys watched that fight was, were things back to normal? Were you just another one of the guys at the firehouse? Oh, right away. I mean, I mean, nothing's changed. They're probably like, hey, gotta go clean the dishes or something. I have no idea. They don't, they don't, uh, they don't care about me. I'm a, I'm a little man in a totem pole. They don't care. <laughs> uh, well, in terms of COVID-19 in Cleveland, there were, were like 10,000, 15,000 plus cases a day. And now it's one, like 1,500 cases a day. What has uh, the city of, of Cleveland and the state of Ohio done so well to help get those numbers under control? So just being smart. I think people are like listening now and wearing the mask and, you know, uh, washing their hands and just being safe. And, uh, you know, I think realize people realize that, you know, if they're not smart about it, things are going to stay closed. And I think they wanted things open, like, you know, the restaurants and the bars and, you know, it was hard to watch, not so much for the bars, but a lot of my friends own restaurants, you know, local restaurants. And uh, I was doing as much as I can, going to eat there, you know, getting takeout just to, like, help them out as much as I can. And uh, But I think we all figured it out. And, you know, we're, you know, people are being smarter and being safe. And, you know, uh, we're not far off away from uh, getting everything um, taken off. We're just, uh, I think we need 50 people every 100,000. So we're at, like, almost 125. So it's getting there. So they say by July, but I think before that. Well, that's great news, of course, for uh, your hometown and, uh, and your home state. Yeah. Um, has your role as a volunteer firefighter changed at all during this whole COVID era? Well, I'm not volunteer. I'm actually, I'm paid <laughs> uh, uh, part-time, <laughs> though. No, it's all good, though. But no, um, yeah, so yeah, when it started, it was a little weird because, you know, we usually have, you know, like people don't understand being a fireman. You, you, you work a nine-to-five job at the beginning of the day. You have things to do. You have the truck checks. You have inspections. You have co uh, combat. You have training. You have... 
you know, a lot of things to do. You have calls as well, and you just you have a lot of things throughout the day. So you have like a regular job, you know, like most people do, you know, for eight to nine hours. We do stuff during the station. After the nine eight hours, you know, we kind of go on, go about our day and do what we want. And uh, it was just weird because we couldn't really do anything. We just only could do was uh, a continuing education, and we really couldn't do much besides going on calls and that. And sometimes, and calls went down a lot too because people were nervous to get, you know, to call the, the squad and, you know, go to the hospital. Well, I know you can't control what think of you, but in my opinion, you're the greatest heavyweight of all time, and we look forward to seeing you do your thing this weekend against Francis and Ganu. Regardless of what happens, I think that you've made your family very, very proud, and uh, your legacy's uh, basically etched in stone at this point in time. So thanks for your time. Appreciate it, and uh, again, best of luck. Thank you, sir. You have a great day. I'm now joined by Francis, the predator in Ganu, who's going to be fighting for the UFC Heavyweight Championship this weekend against Stipe Miocic at UFC 260. And Francis, I was watching your videos uh, for Fight Week leading up to this event, and you were walking around and saying, I just, I feel something different when it's fight week. Talk to me a little bit about those nerves that you feel leading up to a fight when the fight week has actually arrived. You know, it's all, uh, it's all about this thing, you know, uh, media and then who makes you uh, realize that we are just around the corner, you know. Uh, the, train, the, training, the, the training camp that has been uh, doing is over, is is the is the time for the reality you know is the time to showcase that is the time to uh perform so like when that moment come you switch and your body kind of like uh tell you uh tell you that is is ready you know um and your mind is noticing something different that is getting uh to something different and you kind of like have this kind of feeling i, I think mm -hmm. it's always uh he works for the same for everyone, but it's, it's always a new, uh, strange feeling. Now, I bet you if I asked every UFC fighter, who would you be most nervous or anxious about standing across the cage from? Most of them would say Francis Ngannou. But do you get nervous? Do you get anxious? Do you get butterflies in your chest as the event draws closer? I think it's normal to get, I think it's normal to get nervous because um, you you're going to an unknown and you don't know how it's going to end up. You always have this question uh, uh, in your head, like, how did this going to go? Do I going to be okay? Do I going to be uh, able to perform, to showcase uh, and to uh, show people what I've been working on? You know, you always have this question and you're uh, nervous. doesn't matter what, who is in front of you. You have this. And I think uh, when you have a um, some some... When you have some big thing in line, that's always how you, how you feel. When you go to a, um, it, whether it's an exam or whatever you're doing, which is big for you, has a big meaning for you, you have that feelings. You have had such short fights lately. I believe your last four or five fights have been under three minutes total in length uh, because of your devastating power. Now, the question I have about that is, who does that benefit more? You, because Stipe hasn't been able to see all of the new things that you've learned, or him, because you just haven't gotten as much cage time as you'd like to, to be able to practice all of your new skills uh, in competition. Well, um, I won't be able to answer that question because I don't really know who that benefit the most. But what I do know is, like, on my end, I, would try, I always try uh, in the training camp to do 
uh, to train for the um, to spend more time in the octagon. But when I get the fight finished earlier, I still take it and it's a win, you know, and I'm happy with that. Uh, if Saturday I still get some uh, short time octagon time, I'm I'm totally okay with that, you know. It's nothing that I it's not something that I will complain about it. But um, I always I also ready for uh, the 25 minute that the fight is gonna take because the last time uh, I went to the 25 all the way to 25 minute um, I didn't handle it very well so this time I make sure uh, to have more more toys in, tools in my bag to uh, deal with that. He took you down six times in your fight. You've also fought the likes of Cain Velasquez, Curtis Blades. These guys are fantastic wrestlers, probably even higher pedigree than Stipe. What did he do correctly that they weren't able to do, in your opinion? Well, uh, I think I wasn't able to knock it. Uh, I, did, I wasn't able to knock it out, knock it out earlier, knock him out earlier, and uh, we gave a. Um, he had a chance when, uh, with the fight going on, you know. So with that, he has more time uh, in the octagon with me than all those people that you have mentioned combined. That's a very good point. <laughs> Absolutely. I think I did the math and, you know, outside of yourself uh, and Stipe, I think you've had like 34 minutes of total cage time and you had 25 with Stipe. So, uh, you know, almost the entirety of your UFC career minus that Stipe fight, they're almost the same, which is, is pretty wild. Uh, in that first fight, you were coached by Fernando Lopez and uh, Dewey Cooper. You've now moved over to being coached by Eric Nixick, a fantastic coach from Extreme Couture in Las Vegas. What is the biggest difference between the two approaches of those coaches, and how do you think it's going to make a difference this weekend? Well, first of all, um... The uh, extreme couture is right here in Vegas where I'm based and uh, I don't have to, uh, like last time I had to go all the way to France, uh, like three weeks to the fight and I don't, I, I didn't have to do that this time, which is good, I think. Um, but as far as uh, for Eric himself, he's a great coach, he, ha he just had a um, a reward for the he just won an MMA reward for the uh, best coach uh, coach of the year and um, his approach the way that we've been working makes me being uh, even more confident you know so it's a new change I change kind of like everything but uh, Dewey Cooper is still in my camp we still work together Coach Nixick doesn't coach uh, any champions. I don't think he's had any champions uh, under his tutelage. What do you think it would mean to him for you to become a champion? Uh, you mentioned he was coach of the year last year. He's certainly uh, establishing himself as one of the top coaches in the game. There's not many coaches that have coached champion, and most of the time, uh, most of those coaches have coached champion for the first time as well. Everything has a start. The problem is not if he, yes or not, he have coached. He has coached champion but if he's uh, able to coach a champion i think the answer here is yes which is the most important 
Now, everybody keeps asking you about your upbringing, and I know it was a very difficult upbringing that you don't really like to talk about. So I want to just talk about one thing from it, which was your goal was always to become the champion. It wasn't just to move to America and become a, a prize fighter or anything along those lines. Champion was the big goal. Obviously, yeah. you now have a, a great house in Las Vegas. You, you've become a fantastic fighter, but you still have yet to become a champion. Why has that always been so important to you in terms of fulfilling your quest? Uh, because that quest is um, uh, my own way to deal with my childhood that um, wasn't the happiest one. And I promised myself to do this, to become a champion in order to prove those people that I wasn't just a um, failure. You know, I was just a kid as everyone else, but didn't have a chance. Uh, to uh, have a parent who can provide, a family who can provide to me as their family provide to them. Um, and even though I had to work uh, very early, uh, at my very early age, it wasn't enough. So, but, you know, I was proud of myself, but uh, for the outside uh, looking, it wasn't enough. And I didn't like the look that people, the look that people threw on me. You now have the Francis Ngannou Foundation, where you're trying to help empower the children in Cameroon to become, uh, to become great like yourself and to, to overcome any odds that they might have against them. How is that going, and what have you been able to do so far as part of the foundation? Well, the foundation uh, is doing really well. You know, the goal with this foundation is to empower those kids uh, who uh, most of them are in the same situation that I was, and I know exactly what it is. So um, with this foundation, we are not really we are not really looking for ta for uh, athletes for talent, but we are just like want to give them opportunity to to let them know that uh, they, they matter, you know that they, uh, we we they care we care about them as well. So um, if they can that can help them to keep up with their dream, whatever it is, whether it's to become a lawyer or a um, doctor or a journalist or whatever it is so they, they keep believing because i know how uh, a self-belief uh, can be very important in order to achieve your goal and to have a self um yeah to achieve your goal and to have a um to make your way up to to your dream and um for now we have done we have been doing a lot of work with the foundation since uh, the past two years, and we have over 100 kids now. We just uh, signed a uh, partnership with a hospital who also helped us to provide uh, uh, healthcare to those kids, um, who for most of them never been in the hospital, even when they get sick, because uh, their parents don't have any money for that, and they can't even afford to buy uh, appear for them or nothing like that. So we want to try our best to provide as much as we can, whether it's to collect uh, close as we are doing right here in Vegas, collect staff, old staff, and uh, ship it back, uh, school back. Um, we take the donation, um, we get school back, book, pens, and all those things that I was, um, I didn't have when I was school, when I have a trouble having, I trying to provide them to those kids. 
not like it's enough, but, you know, just to motivate them, to let them know that, you know, um, the fight is still on no matter what. Uh, you still, you might, they might still have, uh, they, they, they might have to go uh, far to, to push harder than some people, but that doesn't mean they can make it. They can still make it if they keep believe in themselves. And that's the most important thing that we want to learn we want to teach them um, through the foundation just to believe in themselves in, in the way that something can happen if they believe in it. And that's all what matters is to, for them to believe in themselves. Well, that sounds like great work, and you should be very proud of yourself for being able to give back to your community like that. Is it difficult for you to go back to Cameroon? Does it remind you of your childhood? Do you feel any sort of trauma when you're there? Uh, actually, um, I don't like, even though I don't like my childhood, but um, I feel like he's what uh, made me what I am today, you know, so I have to embrace it. I go back home uh, as as much as I can. Uh, two or three times per year, I will be home. I will spend like four, uh, four months, uh, at least four months in a year in, uh, in home. You know, because he also remind me, he also helped me to settle down, to know where I came from and to uh, settle my target, not to forget where I'm going exactly, you know, uh, not to get lost in the middle of all these things going on. You know, he helped me to settle and see uh, people that we, we have grew up together. I mean, sometimes he also helped me to realize um, how important was it, uh, is it to not... Uh, give up your dream because I was there and I am here today. So uh, still dreaming. So I just have to keep dreaming and work in order to achieve this dream because I know that is going to happen just a matter of time as long as you believe in it. Well, it was a fantastic journey for you to get to where you are today and hopefully it culminates in a world championship this weekend. Really appreciate your time, Francis, and best of luck against Stephen Miacic, the main event of UFC 260. Thank you, Aaron. I'm now joined by Tyron Woodley. He's facing Vicente Luque this coming weekend. This is the lowest-ranked opponent you've fought since Dong Young Kim. I think that's probably back in, like, 2015 along those lines. So it's been a while. Is this more about proving, proving something to yourself with a win here rather than everybody else? I mean, you don't want to lose three in a row, obviously, and there's always a sense of urgency coming into a fight. But is that what the mandate is here? Shit, I already lost three in a row, so I don't want to lose four in a row. But, um, you know, it's just really to, to really go out there and perform. And um, I think part of it is to myself, but I do want to make my coaches proud. They work hard. You know, even my last three fights, I was ready. I trained hard. I was prepared. Um, every stone was covered. And for some reason, I didn't execute. I didn't perform. So it's not so much for the fans to prove them uh, right or wrong. It's not so much for the ranking system. Because Vicente Luque is ranked 10th because he don't speak a lot. It's not because of the skill set. It's not because he don't have the ability to knock out. You know, I think he has several finishes, maybe 90-some percent finishes in the UFC. So he's a tough opponent, heavy hands, um, good IQ, good striking. Very durable, and um, he wins a lot of fights in the final moments just because he just keeps chipping away. So this is a good test for me. It's a good fight, and um, I'm excited to go out there and just perform. 
has losing helped change you as a person? Like, does it does it feel like you're in a better place having lost fights rather than having been the champion? Uh, we've kind of discussed this in the past, where being the champion comes with a lot of pressures. Whereas it seems like you're really at ease now. Whenever I talk to you, you know, I mean, <clears throat> losing doesn't help help you become a better fighter, but it helps me become a better man because. I could have had a lot of different opportunities to walk away. I've done enough in the sport to be like, oh, okay, well, I'm done. And all of these guys are, you know, beating me. But no one's beating me because they're younger, faster, stronger. They beat me because I didn't perform. Um, if I was to the point where I felt like fighters were just passing me up, you know what I mean? It was just better. There was just, you know, more skill. And it was just, you know, I just, the sport had passed me by. And then, then I would consider it. But I think when you lose and you see the value lessons in the losses, you make the corrections. It was never the work ethic for me. It was never the skill set. It was never the um, the ability um, to go out there and fight and perform. It was always just something holding me back. It was more of a mental and emotional thing. Uh, maybe some of these fights didn't mean the same as the Robbie Law or Carlos Condit, Darren Till fight, or a fight against you know um, Jay Heron after a loss, or a fight against Chakashek after a loss. Those fights meant different to me because I really looked up to those guys. And then it became the point where I was the, I was their biggest fight. I was Usman's biggest fight of his life. Gilbert Burns' biggest fight of his life. Kobe and Vicente Luque as well. All these guys, no matter who they fought before or after me, I'm the person that gave them the most solidification on their, res, on their resume. And they really didn't do that to me. And I think that I had to redirect in my mind to proving people wrong because there's millions of those people to try to prove wrong. But I got a small circle that create big damage, and I can prove those people right, including myself, including my family, um, my daughter, my sons, um, all my coaches, everybody that's put in the work. You know, I'm not the only one doing this. You know, my sister's uh, my assistant as well. She does a million things for me, and I got people worn out and tired and exhausted for what? For me to go out there just to watch paint dry? No, you know, so I want to just focus on Myself first, focus on God, focus on my kids, and then focus on the very near and dear people that are in my circle that make this thing work. Well, I think you're a human example of why proving people wrong is extremely overrated. When you were the champion and you were beating everybody, people were still trying to you know, hold things against you or say, oh, he didn't do this, he didn't do that. It seems like no matter what you did in your career, and you're one of the greatest welterweight champions of all time, nobody was ever satisfied. Yeah, you know, when you when you're proving everybody wrong, and you're you're basically putting yourself in position. Give me one second, because I think one of our Wi-Fi's is low. Maybe it's mine. Um, but when you're proving everybody wrong, what does that do? If if you prove everybody wrong and they're like, "Oh my God, he did it again!" Oh my God, we go, "Oh, here we go again." And if that happened, then maybe. But at the end of the day, it's not really overrated because I just needed to go out there improve myself right and if you do that the focus will never change you can get tired of trying to prove people wrong i even before i had the title i had to you know i didn't come into the ufc and fight one fight and didn't fight for a title no i had to prove myself and it was a time that i had to petition for it and i petitioned for the biggest and the toughest and the most hard um style matchups for me because i felt like with that pressure, I would turn up and I would actually go out there and perform. And with that performance, it would put me in position. And I did that. You know, look at my resume. Look who I fought. Everybody I fought was either a formal title holder, contender, challenger, or interim champ. So that that wasn't by that was by design. It wasn't a it wasn't a surprise. It wasn't an accident. It's what I actually sought out to do because 
if I go out there and I perform my best, I feel like I can beat him. If I came up short, then I came up short against Carlos Condon or Robbie Lawler or Koshek, somebody that, you know I mean, they've been at the top of the food chain. And there's guys like Vicente and guys that are maybe even ring lower than him that can be equally as tough and maybe even harder. They just don't have the name to push you into that position. So my focus now is just to prove the important one's right. You mentioned to Ariel uh, in your interview with him that uh, was released today that during the fights, I guess, with Colby, with Gilbert, with Usman, you, you could tell that you were losing. You, you had it in your mind, like, you know, I'm, 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 not, I'm not able to do this right now. I'm, you know, what's going through your mind? I, you know, to walk me through that. When you have somebody that's beating you in a fight, you know that you're just as good as they are. But at that moment... Better. Yeah, or better, better. than they are, exactly. I was, never, I was never just as good as any of those guys. I was always better than all of those guys. And it's not a knock on them. It's just the work that I put in before I even got to them. You know, I trained with the best striking coaches, the best grapplers, the best wrestlers, um, the best MMA coaches. And I put myself in a position that if I fought the best brawler like Robbie, I would be successful. If I fought the best striker like Carlos, I would be successful. If I fought the best grappler like... Um, Damian Maya or Andre Gavall would be successful. The best point fighter like Wonderboy, I would be successful. And I put myself in that position years and years before I even got to those positions. So it wasn't, you know, a knock on them. It's just that they hadn't had the time yet. You know, some of those guys have made up the gap. And in time when I was either injured and rehabbing from surgeries or I just took time away from the sports just to just to have a regular life, they bridged the gap in between those times with hard work and training. And um during those times I was in a fight, it was more of a conversation with God. It wasn't like, I was like, damn, am I losing to him? Punch, he's right there. I see it. It's open. Dude, why did I just let him take me down? Oh, shit, that hurt. Let me move. Like, it was just really kind of, it was kind of silly thinking back, but it was a real moment. It was just like, I saw, but I didn't take. I felt it, but I didn't go. My arms felt heavy. Or I just felt like I was in a bad dream, and it was like, I didn't, I couldn't make out and it was kind of confusing and I didn't understand why it was happening to me. And um, why, why would I let Usman make me back up? Why would I let anybody make me back up? You know, like I'm the one that they're watching my highlight films. Like they looked up to me. I'm the one that should be pushing their ass back. And um, that's kind of what I was having those conversations with myself within those fights. So what does it take in the future to turn that around? Like if you're in that predicament again, what can you do to kind of block that out? And I mean, I you? had to deal with it. I had to address it. I had to deal with it. I had to address it in training camp. This training camp, yeah, I had this, the traditional hard work, the pushing through your comfort zones and being fatigued. And a lot of times I got tired before practice. I have to do these circuits and whatever I had to do, some specialty training, you know, whether it was with McKee or my boxing coach or, or whatever. I had to do training before I even got into sparring around so I could be exhausted. So they can see how I look in those fights, and let's let's figure it out. Like, what are you thinking right now? What's going on? What's stopping you from going forward? What's stopping? You know what I mean? Because it's always choices. If I back back, I never want a millisecond of a, a moment of a fight, less than a round of a fight, back and back. And I've never lost any any fraction of any scramble of any exchange of anything moving forward. So with that knowledge and me knowing that before we even had a conversation, what would make me want to back up? What would make me want to go second instead of going first? And um, those are conversations that, you know, obviously they stay within the room with me and my coaches, but those conversations were had. And I think they just addressing it head on and not running from it. 
And um, even to the walkout, what are you feeling when you're walking out? What are you feeling when they, you know, is getting two or three fights close to yours and you're about to walk out there? What are you thinking as your hands are getting wrapped? And just it's such a psychological sport that we forget to even address that portion. So this training camp had a lot of that as well. Your training partner, uh, Gerald Mearshart, he lost to Shemaev, I believe, on the same card that you were on. Did that affect you in any way? I know you and him are very close. Um, I try not to watch. Um, try not to watch my um, teammates fight before I fight. Like I was on a car with Ben when he was fighting um, when he fought Robbie, and I was fighting um, I think Usman. And I don't want to watch it because you know some of these dudes I really love. You know, like I love Ben, I love Gerald, I love Biggie, um, all my training partners um, at, at Body Shop, all my training partners and Daryl Cobb and everybody. Like I should have a real love for these guys. So when they get hurt or they lose, I know what it I know what it means to their family. I know what it means to their bank account. I know what it means to their career and their legacy. And it hurts me as well. So I can't watch it because I'm an emotional fighter. So I have to watch it afterwards. Or if they win, I also don't want to get too excited and too pumped up because I still got to keep myself composed in my own event. So um, I, unfortunately, I just don't watch it. For the last fight, there was the press conference, and it was, seemed like it was everybody but yourself and Colby that was that took part in this thing. Was there going going to be a press conference with you and Colby? Because I was watching, and I was like, okay, I guess they're having these fighters on first, and then Colby and Tyron are coming out after. And then you guys, I guess, did scrums. Did something fall apart there? Did something happen behind the scenes that prevented that from happening? Uh, I'm not for sure what happened. Um, the original press conference was only me and Colby. And moments before that press conference took place, it excluded me and Kobe, and they wanted us to do a one-on-one. And at that point, just with the weight cut and just with just trying to stay focused on the fight and, you know, getting myself, you know, mentally prepared and ready, I just didn't feel – I didn't feel the need to have a press conference talking about somebody I knew was in the same building. And if our sport is kind of built on controversy and true and real beef, I didn't understand why we wouldn't be sitting next to, next to each other. It made no sense to me. I don't know if it was um, – because of the, the election coming up, I don't know what the the reason was, but it's not my it's not my organization, it's not my position to question those things. That they they run this show. I'm I'm blessed to be able to fight and um, go make a living and actually go out there and show the world um, what I do best. So those things that are behind the scenes, I try my best now to just really recognize how much is not my business. So at that point, you know, you saw what I was what, what my answers were because. That was more important than the fight itself, what was going on at that point in time. And I just use that as an opportunity to be positive about that. And because you can ask me any question, Tyron, what are you going to do differently, Tyron? Tyron, tell me everything in your life that was going wrong that caused you to lose. Tyron, how, do, how can we know you're going to come back this time and do better? I don't owe people shit. I don't have to fucking tell people my life. I don't have to tell them, promise them that. I've done everything to change it. I don't have to go out there and give you the blueprint on how I'm going to do it. I can say whatever I want to say on this Saturday. I can either go out there and turn up or I can do the same thing again. We don't know it's a Saturday, so I don't feel obligated to have to tell everybody what I'm going to do when I got to fucking do it Saturday. Well, you did use the platform, of course, to spread a good message, so <laughs> I don't think anybody can disparage yeah. you for that. Um, now, in terms mm -hmm. of Colby, uh, he's a great fighter. If you take the shtick away... We, we all know what this guy can do in the cage. But does it hurt more to lose to somebody like that? Somebody that's just been talking, you know, disrespecting you for years and years and years? Well, he wasn't really disrespecting me. He was doing an act. And, um, you know, I knew about the act. 
I even talked to him about it. I told him it's a different way to do it. You know, he looks stupid and silly, but if that's what he want to do, go ahead and do it. He's like, man, I'm just trying to get money, and you know, I'm just trying to build this up, and we can make money at the end. And I just let him know that the, I gave him attention one time on a Fox episode, and that was it. And I told him I wouldn't say anything else. So for the longest, he was able to just go and run with it freely because I never, I never said anything about it. I was a champion. I didn't have to address him, and um, it hurt to lose to him just because of. He was willing to use an act to stir up some some negative controversy um, with some things that was very sensitive, whether it was, you know, Brazilians, whether it was a, the political debate, whatever he was doing, it was all a game. And I think certain things you shouldn't play with. And just for someone that I used to pay as a trainer partner that had never even thought about winning a second against me in any training format ever in life. To, to lose to a guy like that when I had a chance to go out there and beat him, send a strong message to the division, send a strong message to um, America that, you know, we should stand together and also just, you know, to kind of silence him a little bit. Yeah, it kind of hurt more for those things than anything else. But looking back, I never lost the opportunity to still reach out to those people and send a positive message. And victory or defeat is still the platform. So you and him had discussions behind the scenes, I guess, when you were champion, when he was really trying to come up and become a contender, that he was going to pursue this act. I mean, um, I mentor most of this division. You think about Usman, you know, I've got conversations with Usman about, you know, just chill out, we're going to fight, you know, do this, fight this guy, you know, I got your back, you know, when they were driving him about, you know, saying that he was only 30% or whatever, and, you know, I took a farm on Fox. I always, get, always gave him his credit, and then the same thing with Kobe. You know, who he should fight, how he should go about getting sponsors. You know, he came out to my gym before he was in the UFC for a training camp, and I was trying to help him that way. And even when he got to the UFC, just, you know, just saying, hey, man, fight this guy. He got a big buzz, and, you know, you probably can beat him and stuff like that. That I did that for a lot of fighters, and um, I don't regret doing it. You know, um, I was, wasn't was insecure. I knew that at some point I can match up with any of those guys. But um, I remember one time I was at an after party, um, after I beat Darren Till or somebody else, and, and Usman came to my party, and he was like, um, he came over Rashad Evans or something, and he was like, how did it feel when they wrapped the belt around you? And I told him, I said, you, you'll feel you'll feel it one day, and then um, you'll have your moment to see what it feels like when you get the belt wrapped around you. To me, it didn't feel the same. I thought, imagined it was going to be like, oh, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, all over the place. But I had won the belt so many times on the treadmill, so many times in training. I visualized it so many times that when it happened, it just became a part of the process and I never really enjoyed it. And um, I never thought that when he got the belt wrapped around him, it was going to be against me. And I think that's why he was so emotional and that's why he was crying. And that's why he felt so bad. Um, at the end, you see my mom come through because we had that conversation and I knew he would be champion at one point in time. But I thought that I would have been, you know, defending my belt so many times, moved up to middleweight, got that belt, defended it, and then walked away into the clouds and just, you know, sayonara the sport. And I didn't recognize that, you know, whether it was because Kobe wasn't ready or whatever the case may be, that we fought a little earlier than I thought. And, you know, he came out there and he executed. And he was focused and he was determined. And he beat the greatest welterweight at that time. And, um, you know, I can never, you, you never hear me slamming him on that because he did it, you know what I mean? And now he's a champion and he has to see what I had to go through constantly trying to prove himself. So um, that's just, that's just 
little history for the sport. And so finally, with that in mind, do you think that for Colby, if he ultimately does become champion one day, that it's not going to be worth it for him because he, he lost friends, he lost training partners, he lost management, he lost so no. many things along the way? Kobe's been away his whole career before that. He's been away in wrestling. He's been very self-centered most of his career. And um, I think he built a couple friends down the road and burned a couple of bridges, you know, with Masvidal and some of these other people. And um, I don't think it really bothers him because some people are just out for themselves. So if he gets it, of course, he's going to be excited about it. Of course, he's going to be happy. And uh, we can't act like that, you know, there's no chance that he can do it because, you know, he had a good fight against Usman. It's a very close fight. And um, at the end of the day, he's going to always look out for himself. And that takes you so far. But I think when you think about who's going to be remembered when it's all said and done, whose footprints is going to last the longest in the sand. Right now, I'm in the front runner. No matter what, I've always been myself, always staying true to my values. And, um, you know, when it wasn't cool to speak out, I spoke out. And when the division was the toughest, I beat all the best in their prime. I didn't beat the I didn't beat the guys on their way. I beat the best in their prime, and um, you know I did it very quietly and I did it very consistently. And um, this this Saturday is for me. It's for my legacy. It's for me to remind everyone of who I am and what I can do and what I'm capable of. So um, that's kind of what my focus is. It's just I think I may get more more people pay attention to what I did when I'm done when I walk away and they look at look back at how I did it. And, under what circumstances I did it in. Yeah, well, there was always this, uh, this, I guess, mistruth that you were an inactive champion. From the day you became the champion to the day you lost the belt, you were the most active male champion in the UFC. And I hope people do look back yeah. and recognize that. Yeah, statistics don't lie. And I, I think sometimes we, we don't do research as um, fight fans. We just listen here and then we just regurgitate. But when you look back, I was the most active and I had the belt for the most amount of days. And then... You know, I was fighting the, the elitist. I was fighting the, the best grappler, the best point fighter, the best brawler, the most heavy-handed up-and-coming fighter. You know what I mean? So I had so many different obstacles that, you know, at that time I wasn't living right, though. My, my outside life, my personal life was a fucking mess. It was a tornado. And I couldn't expect to keep winning at that level and keep living the way I was living. So I, I allowed the lifestyle to get to me a bit. So when people think that all oh, music and TV and none of that stuff stop me, it's art. It's all art. They go together. We need to put trying to separate them. They go together. Um, if, if someone's playing Call of Duty or Fortnite for six, seven hours, you're going to tell me that person's more focused than me? If I'm going into the studio and I'm making fucking hits with, with Grammy Award winning legendary producers and songwriters, and you can't tell me I'm not focused. I'm just utilizing my, my paintbrush on a different canvas. So um, my lifestyle was just terrible at that time. I'll be real with you. And um, right now, I'm back to the basics. Not because taking lessons forced me to, because I know it's what got me here. I'm, I got back to the tyrant that got me here, and it wasn't what I was doing. All right, Tyron, well, I always appreciate your honesty and having great conversations with you. Thank you for this. Appreciate it. And uh, best of luck, of course, this weekend against Vicente Luque. Thank you. Appreciate it. I'm now joined by Extreme Couture coach Eric Nixick, who's going to be in the corner of Francis Ngannou, looking to go two for two in the month of March. Your first UFC champion, Aljamain Sterling, crowned earlier this month, and now you've got Francis Ngannou on the horizon. Yeah, you know, uh, one, le one less to go, so, uh, you know, hopefully pull it out on uh, March 27th. 
Now, before we uh, get started on that, I, I do want to ask you about some breaking news that just came down. Uh, Misha Tate coming out of retirement. I think she's training over a stream couture. Uh, what can you tell me about Misha, her state of mind right now, what, you know, where she's at? She's been in the gym every day, you know, so she, she when she got back from Singapore, um, you know, I you know, kind of caught wind of, of what her intentions were and, you know, said, let's let's get you in the gym. Let's get you back in the program. Let's see how everything kind of shapes out for you and see how you feel. Um, you know, obviously, uh, being a female, her having two babies and everything else, she just kind of wanted to take it easy and see how everything was going. And I would say within the last month, man, she's really turned a corner. And I think she's gained that confidence in knowing that she can come back and, and be competitive in the in the division again. So, you know, it, it was uh, it was the right timing for her, man. I'm, I'm happy because I got to see her when she first came to Ocean Couture and then win the title. And then, uh, you know, we've been very good friends ever since. So it's nice to see her feel comfortable and being able to come back and compete again. Yeah, absolutely. And she's going to be facing Marion Renault. Marion Renault, in a quote, said she grew up watching uh, Misha Tate compete. Marion Renault is nine years older than Misha Tate. Yeah, you know, and, and Marion's in herself in her own right. You know, she's uh, she's one of the, the best females to do it ever in the sport as well. So I think it's a great matchup and a good fight for both for both the ladies. Absolutely. So some exciting news there uh, right off the top. Now, the other thing I want to ask you about, again, before we get down to business this weekend, Dan Ige's win over Gavin Tucker. You had to have seen something in the tape of Gavin Tucker to be able to exploit that. I, I feel like you guys saw something that led to that, that quick knockout. Am I right on that? Um, y- yes and no. I, I, I mean, I think that uh, there were some areas that we, we thought we can exploit, um, but I, I didn't expect it to be that that fast, to be honest with you. Um, I think Gavin's a is a unbelievable talent, and I thought that these guys were going to come with a, a very good game plan. I, you know, I expected them kind of offensive wrestle, some other things. But uh, all camp long, we were working on that specific cross. We were working on the alley cross or how we were going to set it up off of. Uh, we know Gavin liked to throw a lead hand first, and then uh, then the, then his southpaw cross. So we knew once he opened up for that lead hand. Uh, we wanted to get down the alley, which Dan did, and just put the put the right hand right where it needed to be. And, you know, a lot of people kind of discredit Dan for not having power in that division, and I think he proved a lot of people wrong. Well, his first nickname was Dynamite. Well, I think his second nickname was Dynamite. This guy's had more nicknames than you can count on one hand, but uh, I guess that, that nickname comes from something. Yeah, too, too many nicknames to keep up with, but, uh, yeah, Dynamite I think is very fitting for Danny Yee, that's for sure. Did he get a bonus for that one? Because if so, he finally got the 50K with the 50K nickname. Well, yeah. So, yeah. So he got the that's the second uh, fifty thousand dollar bonus. He had Danny Henry in London, and then this was his second one. So it couldn't have come at better timing. You know, him and his wife were expecting uh, their new baby boy any day now. So uh, I was so proud of him. Just just from you know from a coach's standpoint, we've been together for so long. We've been on the regional scene together, watching him grind and get to that position now. And you know, as a coach. It just it, it warms your heart to see him feel financially stable. Now he's you know number eight in the UFC rankings and coming back off of that loss against Calvin Cater, all the things were just perfect for Dan and his family when uh, getting that win. So your story of becoming a coach, your dad was actually a, a Hall of Fame football coach in uh, in Las Vegas. Uh, so you come from a football background, you played collegiate football. How did you get into martial arts and how did you become such a student of the game to the to the point where you're now coaching champions? Yeah, I mean, I grew up just in a football home. You know, my dad was our defensive coordinator. I had uh, two of my uncles were my coaches. So technically, I really just grew up on the football field. And uh, a lot of, I think, my coaching ability came from my old man, just understanding how to break down tape, how to sit down and kind of understand the nuances of the sport. Um, 
it, and then when, when it kind of translated for me into MMA, obviously, you know, I had to take a kind of a football mentality into MMA and a lot of people would always kind of be uh, critical about, Hey, this isn't football. This is not how it works. But I think I was able to, to show a lot of the people that, yeah, you know, it does transcend. There's a lot of areas that the, where the team sport does transcend in MMA. You know, I, I feel like uh, MMA is the one sport you're really only as good as your team the moment the cage door closes. You know, you got to surround yourself with those individuals. And then, you know, the the path for me was kind of just a different different course than most. You know, I stepped into Extreme Couture in 2007 and then, uh, you know, got just started learning underneath Randy and Mike Pyle and Jay and those guys and Dennis Davis. And, you know, it was uh, definitely a different path than most, but uh, I think it's worked out pretty well for me. In terms of just having that knack for coaching, is strategy strategy? Like if you know something well enough and you have that knack and that background of watching, uh, being, I guess, in a sports environment like you mentioned, do you feel like a lot of people could become successful mixed martial arts coaches uh, if they come from that background? 100%. I think it's just uh, a testament to just, just putting in the work. You know, I, 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 I felt like sometimes I had to be vulnerable and step outside my comfort zone and ask people questions. I had so many great resources around me. And I remember one day looking over at Ray Seffo and thinking like, man, like I don't spend enough time learning from Ray Seffo. I'm just going to ask him, hey, can I learn – can I hold pads for you? I want to learn how to hold pads uh, better. And Ray would tell me to come in every Tuesday, Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. and I'd hold pads for Ray. So, I mean, a lot of my maturation is to the credit of the coaches that I was surrounded with because they really are the ones that spent so much time in helping me and building me and, and, and you know, understanding, helping me understand the sport and growing my fight IQ. Robert Follis, Dennis Davis, Ray Seffo, you know, those guys have just been imperative for paving, pa- paving my, my career, to be honest. But I think anybody can really do it if they have the wherewithal and the, and the intangibles just to, just to step outside the comfort zone and get better at something that, you know, maybe they don't feel like they're good at yet. So uh, that, that for me was big. And I didn't want to be labeled as a specialist coach. I wanted to be a, an MMA coach. I wanted to understand the feet to the floor. And, you know, if we go on the road with somebody, I felt like I didn't need to bring more coaches. I, I was serviceable in every, every regard. So that was important for me. You mentioned the late Robert, Robert Fallas, uh, a legend in, in coaching. Uh, he was Misha's coach. Do you know who's going to be in the corner of Misha Tate? Is it going to be yourself cornering Misha Tate when she makes her return? Uh, I, I Honestly, I don't know. I've helped Misha out in the past. I've never cornered Misha, but um, you know, I'm always ab- available for Misha. I know uh, Jimmy Gifford's been back in the fold. I know she's been working with some, uh, some other – her coaches back from Washington has been coming out with Rick Little and stuff. So uh, to be honest with you, I've been so damn busy right now. I haven't really – had the, the opportunity to sit down with her and talk, but I'm always available for Misha. She's one of my best friends. Um, you know, whatever she needs, I'm, I'm always going to be there to help. So, you know, it's completely up to her, to be honest with you. Well, let's get to what you've been busy with, which is Francis Ngannou. Uh, you know, one of the things that intrigued me so much about this fight is that the sample size, since that Derek Lewis fight, he's fought less than three minutes total. So it's almost impossible, unless you're in the room with him, to know just how much improvement he's made. Where is he at? Like, if you were to tell me from, I guess, that Derek Lewis fight, because that was, I believe, the first time or second time you were in his corner uh, up until now, where has he progressed the most, would you say? Um, so the first fight I was in his corner was actually JDS, uh, but he started training full-time at Extreme Couture, kind of in our system, uh, the Curtis Blades 2 fight. So he's been at Extreme Couture for a while, and then um, JDS was the first one I was in his corner for. But, yeah, no, he's he's grown exponentially, and I think that's kind of been part of the path that he needed to get on was understanding that this isn't just a, a sport where you're able to walk in and just knock people out, and you're going to have to have other skill sets and other tools in the tool shed, you know, because not every fight's going to end up just uh, one-minute, you know, 20-second knockouts. 
fortunately for us, they have been, and we, we really haven't uh, had to show much of anything. But, uh, you know, in the room, he's doing a lot of great things. Um, and I get it, man. It's, it's, in, it's in the room. It's not, it's not with the lights on. It's not in competition. So there's going to be a lot of people one, wondering or doubting uh, what he's capable of doing. But what we see on a full-time basis, man, I, I mean, this guy's grown so much. And I'm just I'm looking forward to, to be able to show some of that. Yeah, I spoke to Francis earlier today, and I said, you know, who does it benefit more? You, because Stipe hasn't seen what you've been able to put together in the last, whatever, two, two, two and a half years. Or does it benefit um, him more because you haven't had the in-cage experience? Like, you haven't had the, the competition time that you would have liked to have to put those skills uh, into practice. And he said, I guess we'll see. But I think that that's really what the most intriguing part of this fight is for me. Yeah, very much so. And, uh, you know, I think I think that... The, the questions are going to be out and no matter what happens and unless we get, you know, some wrestling exchanges some grappling exchanges, but you know, if Francis goes in and knocks this guy out in the first round. Again, those questions will still be uh, a, a rise when, when we fight John Jones. So, you know, all those things are, are, are still up in the air and you're really only able to prove it come fight night. So uh, I, I feel like we've done a very good job of preparing to where we need to be. And, and uh, I, you know, we'll, we'll hopefully be able to show some of that on the 27th. How do you think John does at heavyweight? I mean, when I look at him, to me, he's the perfect prototype for a light heavyweight. His skill set at heavyweight, I mean, you don't see a lot of fighters that will outpoint people at heavyweight and, and have long-term success. Do you feel like he would be better suited to stay at light heavyweight and have his best success there, or do you think he will translate well to heavyweight? I think he'll translate well at heavyweight. I think, um, personally, I think that it would make sense for him to take another fight, a, a fight to kind of like get the the your bearings in the, in the heavyweight division. But, you know, at the end of the day, if they're offering him a, a, an immediate title shot, why risk taking a loss when you can jump right into an immediate title shot? So, you know, there are definitely some kinks I think he's going to have to work out. But in my estimation, I feel like John Jones is the greatest to ever do it. I think he has an unbelievable camp and, you know, Jackson and Brandy Gibson and those guys over at Jackson Wink. Uh, so I think these guys are going to have him ready to go no matter what. But, I mean, if it were up to me, I think maybe getting a fight, maybe like a Volkov or somebody in the heavyweight division to figure out kind of uh, where those those chinks are or maybe work out some of those wrinkles prior to getting a title fight. That might serve him well. But, you know, at the end of the day, man, it's hard to deny a, a, the opportunity at a, at a belt for your first crack at a new division. Yeah, I mean, it's John Jones we're talking about. Like you said, I believe he's also the, the greatest to ever do it. So certainly uh, intriguing. With Habib retiring... To me, I think that Francis versus John Jones is the most intriguing stylistic matchup that they can make in mixed martial arts right now. One of the biggest fights they can make. Do you agree with that? 100%. I, I think if that fight does come to fruition later on down the line, um, if we get past Stipe, I think it's going to be the, the greatest combat uh, fight of all time in Francis and John Jones. You know, I, I can't think of anything that would be bigger than that. When you look at, back at the Rosenstrike fight with Francis, you're there in the corner. And it looked like he was being really methodical until, you know, that, the, the kind of predator mode, I guess, so to speak, given his nickname, kind of kicked in. Were you worried when that happened or were you like, he's got this? I was freaking out because that was not <laughs> what he was supposed to do. You know, um, there was there was some combinations that we wanted to set and he, and he did. And the read was actually... Uh, after you threw the overhand not to fall over and, 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 you know, you had some lead side variants he wanted to throw, which he did. But, you know, I, I know when you get the, the tacticians that break down the fight, they're like, this was sloppy. And, and he'll even tell you that it was, you know, he's like, what the hell was that? <laughs> you know, right in the cage. And I was like, man, I don't know, but it did the job. So, you know, we're going to have to kind of shore those things up. But 
um, you know, when he lands, man, it's, it's something else. And especially when you're don't have any fans in an arena, it sounded like a gunshot went off. So, you know, obviously we were concerned for Jarzinho's safety after that one. I don't know how many video games you've played in, in your lifetime, but that was like button masher stuff. You don't seem like a button masher coach to me. You seem like a guy that likes to, you know, to throw the Hadoukens and, and, and line people up. And it seems like he entered button, uh, you know, uh, button masher mode. Yeah, I take a lot of pride in we tell the guys we want clean kills. You know, we don't want to leave any traces. And, you know, my man went in there and just threw a hand grenade in there and just everything got blown up. So, um uh, yeah, uh, that was the first thing he said to me right when he walked in the cage. He looks at me, he's like, "What the hell is that?" I was like, "I don't know, man." <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was uh, it was definitely nothing that we were working on, that's for sure. With the 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 first part of the combination was something that we had in, in mind, but he was actually supposed to end with a left head kick. And had he done that, I think he would have covered more range. But ultimately, might have knocked Jardino head clean off too. So who knows? Yeah, I mean, I saw the uh, the overim knockout. I was uh, in Detroit for that. Might be the scariest knockout I, I think I've ever seen but the, the craziest thing about that and I don't know if you know this because you weren't in his corner I don't believe at that time like Overeem was walking around backstage talking to people afterwards I couldn't believe it that was like one of the most it was like seeing a ghost appear it was one of the most mind-blowing things I've ever seen covering the sport yeah man it, you know it's it's scary to think that when he lands something actually like clean like that you know the guy looked like a Pez dispenser and and you know almost knocked his head clean off man it's it's crazy with the, the force that Francis is able to generate, you know, not a lot of people um, have ever, ever really felt that type of power, man. I'll tell you, just holding pads for him and, you know, kind of seeing it down the barrel of a gun, man, it's, it's just definitely a scary sight. So credit to some of these guys that are able to take it. You know, Stipe took some of those, man, and it was, it was impressive. What do you think has changed the most in terms of coaching principles, in terms of uh, Francis and Gano? I mean, he was coached by Fernando Lopez, hasn't been for some time and now you've ha- had the ability to kind of mold him over the last couple of years what do you think has changed in terms of the approach that he has from his coach um you know i i can't speak on on much what coach lopez did like i, I don't know those dynamics of what happened but you know i i think for us um it was just mainly kind of focusing on a full mma skill set so practices weren't tailored just to like oh today's uh uh, jiu-jitsu day or grappling day or wrestling day or sparring day we had to blend everything together so most of our practices were ran that way so you're you're training from the feet to the floor uh for every practice and that's important i think because you have to be able to blend you know one one art to the next and not make it look a la carte sometimes it looks like you're ordering a, a meal from like five different restaurants you know so for us i think just having him in the system for such a long time you know it's benefited many fighters and I think you can see that in like Brad Tavares and Dan Ige and Puna Hele Soriano and guys that have been in the system for so long. It's just part, I think, a product, product of the gym and the, the practices that we run. And from what I understand, Kamaru Usman is going to be in the corner this weekend as well. What is he going to bring to the table in terms of, you know, when Francis comes to the corner? I mean, if he comes to the corner between rounds, if it gets there, uh, what, what kind of insight is he going to provide? You know, I think Kamaru brings it. Uh, a, a lot of just mental ease for for Francis. They're they're good friends, you know. And I think just having him there with a, you know, he's he has a championship mindset that a lot of people will never experience. So just his insight, understanding what the fight week looks like, and you know, any of those nerves. I think that Francis, myself, or any of us might be feeling. It's nice to have a guy like Kamar Usman in the corner as a resource, just to be able to talk to, you know. And he's got a great he's got a great mind's eye and a fight eye. So just for us to be able to have another uh, pair of eyes like like Kamara Usman, just an invaluable asset to the corner.
I follow the sport closely, but give me a name at Extreme Couture that I haven't heard of that I'm going to hear about in about a year or two. Um, I'll say Ryder Newman. You know, he's a, he's a kid that's been in our system uh, since day one. He was a collegiate wrestler. He went to my same alma mater as me in high school. Great kid, hardworking, um, and hopefully uh, you'll be seeing him soon. I, I hear that they're having a show coming out here uh, called Ultimate Fighter. I, hopefully he'll be on that. You know, maybe I don't know, but uh, you know, he's uh, he's like a little brother to me. And the kids, the kids, tough as nails. He mixes it up in the room with uh, the best of Sean Strickland's and Brad Tavares's and those guys. So I think he'll be a name that you guys will be uh, hearing about pretty soon. All right, Eric, well, it's a pleasure speaking with you. Um, be- before we wrap this up. How's Aljamain doing? I mean, I don't know when they're looking to rebook this fight, but obviously he's got to be ready. What's going on with him in terms of concussion protocol and, and how he's feeling uh, mentally right now? He, he's doing well. You know, um, he went back to New York this, uh, this past week, and I, I think today he was actually traveling out to the West Coast to go out to L.A. and spend some time with his fiance and just kind of relax and enjoy, uh, enjoy the fruits of his labor. You know, he had such a long camp when you think about it because, you know, the fight cancellation from December, then it got moved to March. Um, he's really been kind of nursing injuries all throughout that process. So, you know, for him, I just told him to take his time and, and kind of get his bearings right and regroup. And when he's ready, get back to get back to work. You know, we're all going to be here for him. So I, I'm excited for the kid. You know, I, I think um, obviously the way the way everything ended, you know, there was a lot of scrutiny and a lot of animosity towards him and stuff. But at the end of the day, the kid didn't do anything wrong. You know, I think he just needs to uh, get back in the room and, and right those wrongs, especially uh, in the, some of the things I think we can do better come fight time, you know. So I'm excited to get back in there with him. I just don't get what people want from the guy. Like, like you said, he didn't do anything. He was on the receiving end of an illegal blow, won the championship. Those are the rules. Uh, I just don't see why people are, are pointing, you know, are, are angry at him. He, he didn't do anything wrong, and I think that he should enjoy and celebrate being the champion. I, I think of how much hard work. You see this hard work day in and day out at the gym, whether it's him, whether it's Ryder Newman, whether it's anybody. Uh, you know, these guys are all, you know, have the, the, the work ethic of champions and put in the work that a champion would, would put in. You know, whether or not Jan was winning up till that point in the fight is irrelevant. We saw how, how it, you know, all, all played out, and we've seen how good this guy's been for years and years and years. People should just let, let the guy enjoy his life. And furthermore, I think it's uh, another kind of element to that, Aaron, was, you know, his family and friends that came and traveled to be there with him to support him in a victory or support him in a loss. They were all there in his home, you know, and and even driving him home from the hospital, he had this like anxiety of like, oh, you know, I have to go home and, and face all these people like he did something wrong. You know, or like 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 he didn't win. And I was like, bro, like these people were here to support you and be with you. You know, and, and I think that's the thing that that a lot of people misunderstood was like he wasn't there home celebrating this like big win or something. He he was there celebrating his family and friends that they deserve that as well. They did. They put a lot of time and effort in to be there for him and to support him, not only for the for the fight week, but for the journey that he's been on. So. You know, it, I think I think it was just kind of spun the wrong way. I don't think people were very fair with it at the end of the day. But, you know, had had Peter Yan been losing up to that point, then Peter Yan was going to be this Russian villain. You know, so it's it's just the way it's spun and, and the way people want to perceive it. But at the end of the day, man, the kid did nothing wrong. You know, he's fighting his ass off, and now we have something to go back to and work on. The part that bothers me is that had he had a big blowout, a big party, and was celebrating, and there was champagne popping, and he was having a great time, it, it shouldn't matter. 
Like it, it, it honestly shouldn't matter. It's it's his friends, it's his family. He he is the champion of the world right now. He he deserves to celebrate it because of all the hard work he's put in. It just rubbed me the wrong way to see people being so critical of him. It just doesn't to me. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I agree with you hundred percent. You know, and and it, it's a shame. It's a shame to be quite honest with you, Aaron. Like this was this this kid's crowning achievement. He should have been proud of himself. You know. Um, he did go home with the belt, and it might not have been the way anybody envisioned or anybody wanted. But the bottom line is, you're right, man. He won. He has the bantamweight title now, and it was just kind of it, it kind of fell flat, you know. I mean, like I didn't even take a picture or post anything just because nothing felt right, you know. It didn't feel right. Um, and then at the, you know, for for me to see him feel that way, it just it it sucks. But now we have some sort of redemption and. You know, the, uh, we have to go prove that we can beat Peter Peter Yawn, and, and that's the task at hand for us now. So, you know, when, once he feels ready to go, we're all going to be uh, all hands on deck for him. So right now, there's not really any sort of timetable as to when he's expecting to be back or anything like that. No, he had some, some injuries that he was dealing with all through uh, both camps, technically. So, you know, he's going to work out those kinks, and, and uh, he wants to get back and be fully healthy. So, you know, when, whenever they decide to do it um, – you know, hopefully sometime maybe during the summer. I, I'm not 100% sure, but, you know, they haven't told me any time or date. But that's been the biggest thing was just making sure he's healthy. Well, the good thing about that division is outside of Piotr and uh, Aljamain, there's not really a next contender. I mean, you've got Dillashaw and Sanhagen lined up. I think that's the perfect fight to make to determine who's next after that. But it does buy time for people to not be so, ra- you know, restless about the division moving on. Uh, I mean, when you look at the, the funny thing about the bantamweight division is, I think it was for five years, it was the same four guys competing for the title. It was Cruz, Dillashaw, uh, Uriah Faber, and Garbrandt for like five years. Now you've actually got all these new contenders. People need to be patient, let this thing play out, and I think it's going to be a great fight uh, whenever the rematch happens. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, you think about Rob Font and Cody Garbrandt, that matchup, and then the Sanhagen and Dillashaw fight. You know, the, I think those, those fights are scheduled for um, July, I believe. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. But um, when those fights shake out, I think the timetable and the timeline makes sense for when Aljo and Piotr fight. And then uh, those winners out of their fight, just kind of just that elimination bracket, if you will, for that Bantamweight division. Awesome, Coach. Well, hopefully you have a second UFC belt in uh, the same month of March. You'll have to have March marked down as a memorable month. For you. Anything cool happened to you in March previous to this? Does March have any other meaning to you? I don't even know what month it is right now, Aaron. I don't even. I just know that I live at the residence in uh, every week. I'm here, and uh, my wife probably hates me. So <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping to go get this win and go on a nice little vacation with the wife and the kids for a few days, and then uh, gear back up because I know I got more guys fighting. So you know that's the thing about being a coach. There's no off season for us. It's just kind of uh, hit the ground running every time you're back in the gym. Well, she can always go to the courtyard in, uh, or the, uh, the residence in courtyard and hold up signs, you know, protest the fact that you're always away from home, even though you probably live 10 minutes from there. I know. My, it's funny because my son always equates fight trips to me going to Abu Dhabi now. So every time I FaceTime him, I'm, I'm here in Vegas, and he's like, Dad, are you in Abu Dhabi? I was like, nope, I'm right down the street, man. But yeah, <laughs> it just feels like Abu Dhabi to him. Well, uh, again, best of luck this weekend. Thanks so much for the time. Always appreciate it. My pleasure. Good to talk to you, brother. A huge thank you to all of our guests, UFC President Dana White, Stipe Miocic, Francis Ngannou, Tyron Woodley, and Eric Nixick. Love speaking to all of them. What a great show uh, to get out to you, the listener. And all I ask for in return is that you rate and review this show. You can go on iTunes, wherever you get this podcast. Five stars, you know, nice, nice review. Goes a long way for us getting some more visibility for the show and uh, 
that's what it's all about, right? Visibility. Because if nobody sees this show, they won't hear the interviews that you just consumed that I thought, at least, were quite good. I, you know what? I entered this week in a bit of a rut. I was having a lot of problems focusing on my interview subjects and, and coming up with research and coming up with good directions for the interview. It was a very difficult week. I lost sleep over it. I rarely lose sleep over this job, but I lost sleep over it this week and was somehow able to pull it together and conduct some pretty fine interviews. So thank you for tuning in, and we'll have more of them next week. Really enjoy having you tune into this show and uh, any sort of positive feedback or negative criticism, you know, constructive criticism you can send my way. I always appreciate that as well. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back with more interviews next week. Thanks for listening to the TSN MMA Show. For all the latest UFC news, visit tsn.ca slash UFC.